Open your Bibles, if you have them, to Matthew chapter 22, verses 1 to 14 is where we're going to be this morning. Matthew 22, 1 to 14. Have you ever been the one that was underdressed at a party? There is potentially no more frightening a feeling that you can have at any moment than being at a party and walking in and realizing you are really underdressed for the occasion. You, you think that you're going to a party that's just a casual thing. You, you know, put on some jeans that don't have holes in them maybe and a t-shirt, and you realize that everyone there is in business casual, and you're extra casual, maybe. <laughs> it's an intimidating, it's a kind of a terrifying feeling, one I feel like I'm often in. Um, in fact, people ask this question a lot when they go to parties, or they're about to go to parties, what's the dress going to be like? I don't want to be the one that is either overdressed or underdressed for the party. What's the dress code? People ask that about our church. What's the dress code before we get there? So I don't want to be the one that shows up in shorts when no one else is. So I'm, I'm thankful for the people that do wear shorts so I can just kind of play it down the middle. You know, we can keep things light and casual here uh, with our dress. In our passage this morning, the king is hosting a wedding banquet for his son. And some attendees, one in particular, find themselves in sweatpants when everyone else is dressed up. Let's look in our passage this morning, Matthew 22, 1 to 14. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered. And everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business. While the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you could find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there, there a man who had no wedding garment. He said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we have read your word and we pray for the truth of your word to sit down deep in our hearts. We can only do that if you open our hearts to sow the word deep down inside. We pray that you would do that. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to obey. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So a few weeks ago, we saw Jesus enters into Jerusalem, and he is riding on the back 
of a donkey. He goes into Jerusalem. People are hailing him as king. They're proclaiming that he is David's son. They're recognizing that he is the Messiah who has come to save them from their sins. And as soon as he gets into the temple and he gets into Jerusalem, he walks into the temple and he cleanses it. And we see from the text, obviously, that he had the authority to do so. In the previous passage, people are hailing him as the king, as the Messiah. Only the king, the prophet, priest, and king has the authority to do that, which Jesus is. The people have said that. He walks in, he cleanses the temples, he drove out the money changers, those making a mockery of the temple. And specifically what he said there is they're making a mockery of the temple because they're not engaging in prayer. They've turned the temple into a den of robbers. They're stealing what is rightfully due to God. What is due to Him are the prayers of His people. For the people will be bowed down in worship of their King, and that is not happening in that passage. See, when it comes to Israel's faith on the whole, they're completely barren. They're fruitless. They come in and they observe the traditions. You notice that the problem is not that they don't observe traditions. They come to church, as we would call it. They attend, they do all of the things that's required of them. It is the Passover at this point. They're coming to observe the Passover. Day of Atonement, they come for that too. All of the feasts and festivals and holidays, they adhere to. The problem is that their heart is not in it. Over the last two weeks, Jesus has given two parables so far, and He's aimed them right at the religious leaders in Jerusalem. The scribes, the elders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the chief priests. And they're just as guilty as the people, if not more so, because not only are the people apathetic, But so are the leaders, and the leaders have led them to this level of apathy. The leaders have led them to treat the temple in this way. And these parables that Jesus is given about how they're not actually even included in the kingdom of heaven. Can you imagine that for just a second? You're a religious leader. Your responsibility is teaching how to obey the laws of God, how to come worship in the temple. And Jesus is giving these parables to you where he's saying, you're not even included in the kingdom of heaven. In the first parable that we saw two weeks ago, Jesus said that the tax collectors and the sinners, they're welcomed into the kingdom of heaven because when they heard the preaching of John the Baptist, they repented and the religious leaders did not. And then in the second parable, we saw that last week, the religious leaders are condemned for the way the nation of Israel has responded to God's prophets and how they will respond and are responding to Jesus. The prophets have been sent to warn them to repent. And what did they do to the prophets? They ignored them. They beat them. And in some cases, they killed them. And then what are they going to do to Jesus? Well, they're going to take him outside the city and they're going to kill God's own son. This is the last, this passage that we're in is the last of three consecutive parables, but it is the most condemning of everybody. 
It's going to bring everybody into that same category. And I would dare say, even for us, as we read it and as we understand it, that we may even get on the back end of this and go, wait a minute, I need to look in the mirror. So after this parable, the religious leaders are going to try to trap Jesus. So he's, given three, he's going to give three parables, and we're in the third one, where he's going to condemn them. And then after this, in the following weeks, the religious leaders are going to try to trap Jesus by challenging him three times in hopes that they can shift the public perception of him. Because remember, in the end of the last passage, we saw that the people kind of held him as a prophet, and for that reason, the religious leaders didn't attack him. But now they're going to turn and they're going to go on kind of a social media campaign. They're going to take out ads on Facebook. They're going to do everything that they can to try to shift public perception of who Jesus is. So potentially they can actually do something to him so to stop him from the condemnation that he's bringing. So three attacking parables from Jesus followed by three traps that the religious leaders are going to lay. And then after that it's going to start to get real. Because Jesus is just going to lay waste to Jerusalem, and then he's going to go in and be crucified. Spoiler alert. It helps, I think, to keep that flow in mind. Help understand where all of this is headed and what's actually happening in this, because there's something of a progression in these parables that Jesus is giving. You notice, at first, the religious leaders are condemned for the way that their heart is in general. And the tax collectors and sinners are brought in. Why? Because they responded to John's preaching. They repented. But then in the next one, they're all lumped in. The religious leaders are all lumped in with those hard-hearted leaders of old who took in the prophets and who killed them. They're lumped in with Herod who cut off John's head. So it's a little bit more in, indicting against the religious leaders. In our parable this morning, Jesus is going to look further into the future and not, not just at what's going to happen to Him on the cross, but look even further into the future and give what is going to be the result for the nation of Israel, indeed for Jerusalem, because of their unbelief in the Messiah, because of what they do to the Messiah. And he's going to do all of that in this parable. So this parable is, I think, very challenging. It's a very difficult parable to understand, I think, at least at first. But I think we can make sense of what Jesus says here. And I think, at least from my experience, it helps to break it down into two sections. And so we're going to do that this morning. The first section is in verses 1 to 7, and the second section is in 8 to 14. And we're going to take them each individually, one at a time. So if you take notes, it might help for you to kind of just block out two big sections here in our text. Now, some of the things that I'm going to say this morning are going to overlap with some of the things that we've talked about in the previous weeks. In fact, even last week. But Jesus is going to go way further into the future. And he's going to allude to what is about to take place in the nation of Israel and, in fact, in Jerusalem proper. So in the first seven verses, Jesus is making the point that God's judgment will fall on unbelieving Israel. Okay, God's judgment is going to fall on unbelieving Israel. And he does that in this first part of the parable. God's judgment is going to fall on unbelieving Israel. So 
we just kind of rehearse this story, just go through it a little bit, the king gives a wedding feast for his son. And in order to have people at the feast, obviously, they have to be invited. And so, he, in verse 3, he sends out his servants to do all the calling. You can just follow along in the passage with me. He, in verse 3, he sends them out to do all the calling of those who are invited to the feast. But what happens? Well, sadly, they don't come. All right? So, he does it again in verse 4. But this time, instead of just inviting them, he entices them with the menu. Ah, if you didn't want to come the first time, you should hear what we're having for dinner. It looks like oxtail and veal parmesan, which is fantastic, it sounds. Um, but no one, again, is interested. Most of them, if you notice, are just passively uninterested in the invitation. They go off, it says, they enjoy their business and their regular lives and all that kind of stuff. There are others who are actively annoyed with the invitation. So what do they do? They abuse the messengers. They even kill some of the servants that come to invite them to the wedding feast. And so, how does the king respond at the end of this first section? He sends out the military to kill those who were the murderers and to burn their city to the ground. Now, parables can sometimes be really difficult to understand. It's very hard for us to think of a story and how that relates to actual, real, everyday life, I think. But even if you are kind of tracking with what Jesus is saying so far, and even if you're able to make sense of it, even more so than you are the second, I think it still helps to think about all the parts of the parable first, to just slow down and let's interpret part by part of the parable and see what each part really represents in what Jesus is trying to say to the religious leaders that he's talking to, and then look at what all of that means. So first you have the king. He throws the wedding feast for the son, and the, I think this is pretty obvious, the part of the king is played by God the Father. The part of the son for whom the wedding feast is thrown is played by God the Son. We know him as Jesus of Nazareth, right, represented here in the story. And there isn't a doubt in my mind that the wedding feast that he's talking about here is the messianic banquet that is to be held at the end of all things when Christ's kingdom comes in full. All right? Now, that may be the first time you've ever heard that term before, messianic banquet. But this is what we are all, or we all should be, anticipating at the end of all time. It's an, it's an age still in our future. When Christ returns and sets his table for all his people, and we join him in this banquet that inaugurates his kingdom come in full. Evil is vanquished, tears are wiped away, everything's done, all sin is abolished, and we are there forever with Christ our King. That's the messianic banquet that we should all be anticipating, and I think that's what is in view here in this parable. We read about this in several places in Scripture. One is in Isaiah 25, 6 to 9, where it says this, On this mountain, the Lord of hosts, this is Isaiah, looking into the future, he says, On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. 
And the Lord, will, Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of His people He will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for Him, that He might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for Him. Let us be glad and rejoice in His salvation. That's what Isaiah is looking forward to. Amen? Right? That's what we're all anticipating. That's what we want. I think when everybody reads that, we say, yes, that is good. That is a wedding banquet I want to be at. All right. John picks up on this in Revelation, and he reiterates some of the same thing. You notice the wiping everywhere, tears away from every eye. John even says that in Revelation. Now, in Revelation 19, 6 to 8, John says this. Then I heard, about the same time, here it is. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and the bride and His bride, that's, that's us, has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. Now, we'll come back to that passage in just a minute. But suffice it to say that the whole of the Bible, the whole of human history, actually, is looking forward to that time. It's all about the wedding banquet that we're reading here in Revelation or in Isaiah. That's what all of it's about. All the preaching that I do or any pastor does from a pulpit. All the rejoicing, the singing, the praying that we do. It's all in hopes that we will make it to this day. It's all about this right here. That's it. All of human history is, is bubbling up to that point right there. That's what we're anticipating. That's what we're longing for. It's all building toward this event. A massive celebration at the end of human history when Jesus the King celebrates at a feast with His people where the two, the bridegroom Christ and His bride, His people, the church, are wed together forever. God's servants, then, are sent out to invite people to this event. We saw God's servants in the previous passage. What role do they play? We know that those were the prophets of the Old Testament. Even up to John the Baptist. They're going out and they're preaching repentance. And yet, the nation as a whole ignores the prophets altogether or they care nothing about going to the Messianic banquet. They care nothing about attending. The religious leaders not only don't care about going to the banquet, they actually shoot the messengers. They don't want to hear it. These messengers, as far as they're concerned, are stealing their thunder, maybe stealing their power, their authority, they're stealing something from them, and they don't want to hear it. And so they shoot the messengers. So what does God do? He kills them and He burns their city. There are two responses that I want to hone in on here from the Jews that I think are very important. There's obviously the big one, which is the most glaring 
I think, of this. They seized his servants, they treated them shamefully, and they killed him, killed them. And we saw some of this last week in the passage we talked about last week. If you go back to chapter 21, verses 35 to 39, it says this, And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, stoned another. Again, he sent other servants. Sounds very similar to our passage today. More than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard, and they killed him. Point being that this is God's view of how he is related to his people through the mission of the prophets in the Old Testament. Like John the Baptist, or Elijah, or any of the other prophets in between, they all came, and what did they preach? They preached repentance. But it wasn't just repentance. There's an invitation in that. Not only repent, but in your repentance, then come back to the Lord and enjoy the feast at His table. Come to the banquet feast. Ready yourselves for the marriage feast of the Lamb. They're inviting them, the nation of Israel as a whole, or the religious leaders specifically, to eternal life. But it's also God's view of how the Jewish leaders have responded to those invitations. They rejected repentance. They shot the messengers. But the other reaction is that I want to look at is of the Jewish people as a whole. Look at this in verse 5. They paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business. The king of all creation has invited them to his banquet table to enjoy a feast. And the response of the Jewish people is apathy. It's apathy. That's what he's saying here. The reaction to the news that God's salvation is coming. His salvation is coming to you to save you from your sins. They paid no attention. Here's why this matters. Often we think of unbelief as something akin to radical atheism. You know what I'm talking about? Someone who is doesn't believe in God or is militant against those that do believe in God. And we would look at that person and we would say, that is what Jesus is talking about here. That is unbelief. They do not believe. They will even tell you, I do not believe in Jesus. I don't want your God. They'll call him all kinds of names. They'll do all kinds of things. So often we see that kind of denial of God's existence as what it means to not believe. But Jesus in this parable is telling the Jewish leaders that judgment is going to fall on the Jews for both killing the apostles and prophets or the the prophets that God has sent out and for apathy. Not only the kind of unbelief that's very obvious to us, but the kind of unbelief that actually attends the festivals, that actually keeps all the religious observances. 
But in the end, is in their heart apathetic toward what God is bringing. It turns out that the heart actually matters a great deal. What is the judgment going to look like that God is going to bring to the Jewish people? He says there, the king was angry and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Now, in the last parable, Jesus looked about a week into the future and he said, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to die. The stone that the builders rejected is going to become the cornerstone. He's going to die. He's going to rise from the dead. And he's going to become the linchpin, the cornerstone of salvation history for his people. And he's going to build his people on top of him, the cornerstone, and the foundation of the apostles and prophets like we talked about last week. But he also said in the last parable that the kingdom is going to be taken away from the Jews and it's going to be given to those who are producing its fruits which is a group of people that are comprised of Jew and Gentile alike. He's going to make, as Paul says in Ephesians 2, one new man out of the two. Right? Those are going to be built on top of Jesus the cornerstone and the apostles and prophets as the foundation. But here in this parable, he is looking forward about 40 years into the future when judgment is going to come precisely to the city of Jerusalem, when a legion of troops in the Roman military are going to surround the city of Jerusalem and they are going to burn it to the ground, literally. Jesus is going to come back to this specific event, Jerusalem being destroyed in Matthew 24, just a couple of chapters from now. He's going to come back to this, and he's going to prepare his disciples for what they must do when they see that taking place, when that actually happens. So he's preparing them even now. He's telling the religious leaders even now that God's judgment is going to fall on unbelieving Israel, both the militant kind of unbelief and the apathetic, heart-level kind of unbelief. It's going to fall on Israel. But in the next section, so that's... Verses 1 to 7. Moving to 8 to 14, the next section he's going to say, God's judgment is also going to fall on the unbelieving people that are associated with the church. This is where all of that stuff he just said to the Jews that we thought we could just kind of put off on the Jews comes home to roost on the church. God's judgment will also fall on the unbelieving associated with the church. There's this second scene in the parable where the king tells his servants that the food's getting cold. And the people that originally were invited are not worthy. So the solution is to send his, I got a lot of food to eat, go out and just to the street corners and just start casting the net far and wide. Invite everyone far and wide as far as you can throw the net, in other words. So as a result, what happens? Well, plenty of people come. Plenty of people hear the invitation to the wedding and they come to the feast. However, out of all the attendees that are there in attendance, one man is in attendance wearing flip-flops and swim shorts. He's clearly underdressed for the wedding. I'm sure he feels awkward. 
So it gets even more awkward because the king comes out and he's surveying the crowd, lots of people in attendance, and he singles out the one man wearing the swim short and flip-flops, and he goes up to him and he asks him, how come you're in swim shorts and flip-flops? How come you're not wearing your wedding robe or gown or whatever? And so the king, the man has no response. He's absolutely speechless. And so the king has him thrown into outer darkness which is by far the strongest reaction to being underdressed ever, right? And it's intimidating. But here again, rather than get lost in the weeds of the parable and wonder what Jesus is talking about, just take it step by step. Who are these people that Jesus is talking about? Well, he's turned from the Jewish leaders, and now there's this invitation to the wedding feast that's going out far and wide. So we've turned from the Jewish nation in in particular, now to generally the whole world being invited. They walk out onto the street corner. They start inviting everyone, good and bad, Jew and Gentile. It doesn't matter who they are. It's not just the Jews. Now it's also the Gentiles being invited to the wedding feast. Now, in history, simultaneous to the decline of the Jews, so from Jesus' own crucifixion down to about 70 A.D., when the temple was destroyed, there's a decline of Jewish worship, let's say. Right? And it culminates in that destruction of the temple. At the same time, simultaneous to that, is an incline of the gospel being proclaimed to the world and being being spread far and wide. So that by the time Paul dies, just before the destruction of the temple, it has reached Rome itself, where Luke is satisfied by saying, The gospel has reached the ends of the earth because it is in Rome, the epicenter of Gentile life. The pagans have even heard the gospel. Can you believe that? Right? So it's going and it's being proclaimed far and wide. So Jesus is reaching far beyond the age of the Jews and into the age when the gospel is proclaimed during the church age where he's anticipating that the reaction to the gospel being preached to the Gentiles is that people will initially be interested in attending the messianic banquet at the end of the age. Which is why, where in our parable, the wedding hall is filled with guests. It's exactly what we see John anticipating in Revelation chapter 7. Revelation 7, 9 to 10. A great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all the tri- all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. It's a great multitude, something that no one could number, standing there praising the Lord before His throne. So here again is the purpose of all salvation history, to be crammed in with a great multitude, no masks, no social distancing, all standing before the throne, praising the Lord at an end times banquet in celebration of God's salvation that He has provided through Christ alone. The invitation goes out to the whole world through God's servants. And who are God's servants? His church. The, the ones that proclaim the gospel. The ones that go and tell everyone to come to the end times messianic 
banquet. And the people respond to the preaching of the church by what do they do? They repent of their sins. They believe in Christ. They follow Him. In other words, they are bearing the fruit of the kingdom. But what's with this underdressed guy that's here in the crowd? What's with him? The swim shorts and flip-flops guy. He doesn't have his wedding garments on. And one of the most important parts about the confrontation with the king, between the king and this man, is that when the king confronts the man, what does it say the man does? He's speechless. Some speculate that back then, the, the host of the wedding was actually responsible to give the wedding garments to the people. They would put on like choir robes, essentially. Don't get any ideas. I'm not wearing a choir robe. But... Uh, he doesn't have his on. He doesn't want to put his on. It's obvious that this is willful on his part that he's not wanting to put on the robes. He has no defense. He is speechless. And because he's speechless, because he has no defense, he's caught wedding crashing. And he knows it. And so, he's thrown into outer darkness. Now the key in interpreting what the wedding garments stand for is the rest of the Bible. Because this image of wedding garments or of garments that people would put on and are going to put on at the end of all time is common in the New Testament, specifically in the book of Revelation. They're mentioned a ton of times. I don't know how many, but there's a ton of times. One of those is in Revelation chapter 19, verses 7 to 8. Look there with me. It should appear on the screen behind me. Let us rejoice, and I read this just a minute ago. Let's read the rest of it. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. Put on her garments. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. Here are those wedding garments again, right? What are they? For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. He tells you right there what they are. And I think that image in Revelation of being clothed in the righteous deeds of the saints holds for Jesus' parable as well. I think he means it in the exact same way. So let's be clear what this is saying and what it's not saying. It's not saying that these uh, robes are earned through our good works. That's not what he's saying. Now, you might come in today Everybody comes in different situations, and I don't ever really know what happened in the car ride on the way to church this morning. Um, even if there was a fight in the car, you wouldn't know it. You get out, you put on the smiles, right? Everybody knows that's what you're supposed to do when you walk into church. Or you may carry in a host of other sins that you've been dealing with, that have just been dragging you down, and you, you have, frankly, no idea what to do with them. And you come in this morning and you've got this burden of sins that you feel like everyone else in this room can see. Everyone else knows. And they're looking at you and they're judging you. There's two reasons I can tell you that's false. Nobody is looking at you and nobody is judging you. Two reasons. One is we have no idea what sins those are that you're dealing with. Second, we got them too. Every single one of us are bringing in a host of those sins with us. Sometimes the exact same sins that you're dealing with. Every single one of us 
have these sorts of issues that we're bringing in to church. No one is judging. Because truth is, none of us, not one person in this room, could earn the robes of righteousness given in Jesus. One person in here could earn that. Every single one of us is in the exact same position. Notice that that's not even what John says in the passage in Revelation. It looks like that. Well, you just clothe yourselves in the works of righteousness. I just do good works and I get the clothes. And that's not what he's even saying in the passage. Look at what he says. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen. Meaning that the good works that Christians do are a product. They are fruit of an indwelling Holy Spirit that enables those good works. It's not I, but Christ that lives within me. That's what Paul says. That's not me doing that. That is Christ that lives in me, producing those good works. It's a salvation they have already received by a heart that God alone can change. God reached into the chest of His children, changed their heart, and then by the indwelling Holy Spirit produces the works of righteousness that then they're rewarded for in the end of all time. How great is that? So who is this man that has come into this wedding feast undressed? Well, he is one who has responded positively initially to the gospel. He said yes to the gospel. You know what he might have also done? He might have also been baptized. He might have prayed a thousand prayers. He might have confessed some sins before. Maybe he's done quite a bit. Maybe he continues to go to church his whole life. But he's also one for whom there was little to no change that actually resulted in, from so-called conversion. Heart was apathetic. It wasn't there. You see that Jesus is essentially addressing the same group of people that attached themselves to the church as he was with the Jews. It is the heart that actually matters. He had no fruit of righteousness to show for this so supposed change of heart that was supposed to take place in conversion. And so maybe we could say it this way. The invitations to the wedding feast says only those who have genuine love for the groom will be permitted to stay. You see what Jesus is saying? The fruit in the life of a Christian is produced by the indwelling Holy Spirit. That's where it comes from. And only Christians have been made new by the Holy Spirit. In other words, only Christians have the Holy Spirit dwelling inside. We call that conversion. That's genuine conversion. Not walking down front, praying no prayer, talking with the pastor, not jumping in the waters of baptism. That's not conversion. That should be a fruit of conversion. That's not conversion. 
Conversion is the Holy Spirit taking up residence inside, and it's mandated that the Holy Spirit produce the fruit of the Spirit, right? Because that's what the Spirit does. He produces fruit when He dwells on the inside. And so it naturally, or you might say supernaturally, changes the heart of those whom He's dwelling inside. So if someone hopes to attend the banquet at the end, but there's no evidence, first, of actual love for God, but second, there's no evidence of repentance, there's no fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, you recall these? Then there's going to be no banquet. Listen, that's going to include a lot of people that thought they were getting in. You understand that? It's going to include a lot of people that thought they were getting in. Came to church their whole life and they thought, for sure, we're getting in. But Jesus has been preparing his followers to hear this and understand it all the way back in Matthew chapter 7. Listen to what he says in 21 to 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty, many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. The message Jesus is teaching through this parable is, is very simple, really. God's going to deal justly with anyone who spurns his invitation to the Messianic banquet. Now, that's simple enough. We can understand that. But the catch of it is, spurning the invitation to the Messianic banquet is not merely outright militant atheism. I don't believe. It's also apathy. Why? Because that's evidence that the heart hasn't actually been changed. Apathy is evidence that the heart has not actually been changed. And all of those whose heart has not been changed be bound and thrown into outer darkness. This is what Jesus means when he says, many are called, the gospel goes out to many, few are chosen. Few have the Holy Spirit actually come into and regenerated their heart, and turned it, changed it, begun producing fruit. So the people in the first part of the passage who were apathetic, you might say, they were also underdressed for the banquet. It's the same group of people. But those who are truly reborn and invited to stay for the wedding banquet are those whose lives, by the indwelling Holy Spirit's power, are conformed to the gospel. All else will face judgment. But here's why I think this matters for all of us. What we tend to call belief in the church is really not how the Bible defines belief. Most of our lives, we grow up thinking that belief in the gospel is 
mental assent. If I, if I could just say, yeah, I mean, I, I believe Jesus came and he, he died, he rose again. And for many in the church, that suffices for salvation. You come to a pastor and you say, yeah, I believe. I believe. I believe Jesus rose from the dead. I believe he saved me from my sins. I believe all of those things. Or you say, I have accepted an invitation. Right? Even some pastors will stand down front at the end of a sermon and they will give an invitation. You come forward. And when the person comes forward, what does everybody think? That person has come to believe in Jesus. You haven't seen a single grape on the vine yet, but you are willing to say that person's saved. Parents come and say, my kid accepted Jesus as their Savior. But you understand, we're less concerned with your kid accepting Jesus and more concerned with Jesus accepting your kid. The evidence of that is fruit that is produced in their life. That is what we as a church are looking for before we go into the waters of baptism. We look for fruit How do I know you're a believer? Well, because I told you I believe. Well, yeah, but anybody can say that. How do I know that you want to put on the robes of righteousness? How do I know that you're producing further? The Spirit dwelling within you is producing fruit. That's why we ask when people come to join our church. Tell us your testimony. How did you come to faith in Christ? Tell us now how you're growing in faith now that you have come to Christ. What difference, what real difference has that made in your life? There's a question that you really, we really just need to ask of people. But has He accepted you? Is the Holy Spirit dwelling within you? Is it producing fruit in your life? In other words, do you open the Bible and you're just bored out of your mind? You just, I mean, just be honest with yourself. Do you just not love the word that's sitting in front of you? When you come to hear the word preached, are you just terribly bored and feel out of place? When you sing the songs and pray the prayers, are you just going through the motions? Is it just not real in your heart? Just be honest with yourself. Is it not there? That's what we're really asking. That's what we're really looking for. Has the heart actually been changed? Belief is not just agreeing that Jesus rose from the dead. It's actually following Him with your life, and that can only result from a heart that's been changed. Second, many of our pews are going to be filled with those who struggle with day-to-day apathy. That's all of us. Every single one of us is going to be there, myself included. We're all going to be there from time to time, struggling with apathy. We just don't want to read the Word. We just don't want to pray. We just don't want to do the regular spiritual disciplines, the common means of grace that God has given to us. I just don't want to go to church. That even includes me, and I'm the preacher. I'm supposed to want to be here. But yes, there are Sundays where I get up feeling absolutely lazy. And just do not want to be here. Or anywhere for that matter. My encouragement to you is this. First. Join a local church. 
I'm thankful for anyone who comes here, who visits here, and I, I'm grateful for you. Some of you come all the time, visit all the time, and you're very faithful attenders, faithful than maybe even some members of the church. And I'm grateful for you. But hear me when I say this. It's out of love that I'm saying this to you. Join church. Don't just regularly attend. The joining process is you saying to the church body, not only am I Christian, but I'm inviting you to look at my life. I want you to see me. I want you to keep me in check. I want you to help me tie my tie as I get ready for the banquet. I want your loving rebuke. I want your encouragement. I want that. And I'm joining the church because I want to do that for you too. That's what you're saying in joining. So join a local church. But not only that, regularly attend the one you join. Come! I know that sounds novel, but average attendance is like two out of five Sundays across the board. Can you imagine that? Come! How can people edify you? How can people encourage you? How can people correct you? How can people do any of that if you're not here? can't. I would also say our small group ministry will be coming back soon. In the coming, we'll say weeks, probably more, month, parentheses, S in there maybe. Don't hold me to that because if the Lord wills, I have to say about everything because 2020 happened. All right? But it's coming back. We'll meet in our homes again. We're going to open it up a little bit more. We'll have more small groups. I want you to take part in that because that's the way we edify each other in our homes. We talk about things that are very real and going on in our life that we can spur one another on toward lives of godliness and out of apathy because that's what we have to recognize. I don't want in my life, I don't want my heart to be apathetic toward the gospel. And where you see it, I want you to poke it and say you can't be that way. Let me help you. Because God has given us Christ for salvation. He's given us the Holy Spirit for sanctification, for endurance. He's given us His Word, and He's given us other Christians for correction and for encouragement. So Christian, put it all to use. Every single one of those, put all of them to use so that at the wedding banquet, at the end of the age, none of us are underdressed. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray for every single person in this room, every single person watching online. I pray for all of us that through the common means of grace that you have given to us, reading of your word, praying of prayer, singing, joining together in fellowship with the body, taking of the Lord's Supper through baptism, through all of these common means of grace that you have given to us, that you will sanctify us, your church, that you will knit our hearts together in unity and love over your word, that through it we will grow, we will change, we'll be corrected, we'll repent, we'll rejoice, we'll be admonished, but we'll be encouraged also. That through all of these things, we will come together as a body, presenting a testimony to the watching world 
something does absolutely change in a person. When you, the God of all creation, have accepted him. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.